there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, Dr. Vitar, it's that time of the week again. Advanced medicine taking it to another level with you, my friend. Thanks for being here. Uh, always, always. Yes, when you remember to show up. Yes, when I remember to show up. <laughs> always, I'll always be here when I remember to show up. Yeah, I mean, you always show up for your patients. What about me, man? No, I can't. Oh, no, I, he's here. He's here. I was stuck in traffic last time. It's okay. Anyway, great time, uh, great articles today that we can cover. We'll get, do our best to get through them. First one that jumps out uh, is uh, off of PubMed. You can find this, in fact, in uh, NIH.gov. Repeated administration of mercury intensifies brain damage in multiple sclerosis through mitochondrial dysfunction. So when we, you know, sometimes, like, I think it was last week, we covered a story where they were trying to claim that um, – Autism was a genetic disorder of some kind. You know how it was a distraction scenario. This one seems to be at least acknowledging the honest truth about damage from mercury direct and impacts uh, cell function, mitochondrial function. So I think they might be on the right track with this one. Yeah, actually, the um, association of uh, mercury and mitochondrial dysfunction is not new. In fact, if you look at some of the original vaccine injury cases, when you look at the grounds under which the court granted remuneration to the parents of the children with vaccine injury, they were very specific that they said it was for mitochondrial damage or mitochondrial dysfunction due to some type of environmental toxicity or whatever the case was. They never said autism. And my response has always been, how is autism and mitochondrial dysfunction different. They're, they're synonymous because you're damaging the mitochondria off the cell, which is, for those that don't know what the mitochondria does in a cell, mitochondria is the energy generator in a cell. The mitochondria is the respiratory unit. Think of it as the lungs of the cell. And so when you, if you want to paralyze a person or an animal, one way is to take out their lungs. Of course, you could take out their heart too, but basically we take out the heart that stops the perfusion of the blood through the lungs that prevents oxygen from getting to the cells. Well, the same type of thing goes for a cell. If you want to take out a cell, the best way of taking out the cell is by affecting the respiratory unit, the part that actually creates energy. Respiration, oxygen, we need that for the Krebs cycle. We produce energy. So without oxygen, we have no life. Um, and that's with the use of oxygen and the, the entire Krebs cycle, the process goes forward, and you have uh, the ultimate yield, which is the denison triphosphate, which is the energy-producing unit. Um, so basically my point is that the respiratory system of any animal, of any mammal, is crucial to life. Without respiration, you have no life. So the thing in the mitochondria uh, is it's the lungs of the cell. So when this particular study says repeated exposure with mercury accelerates progression of multiple sclerosis through mitochondrial damage. It's the same component that causes the regression in autism or any of these other conditions that affect mitochondria. Mercury causes mitochondrial damage. 
end of story, and that mitochondrial damage has now been obviously associated with multiple sclerosis uh, based upon this study. And we, we've known that for a long time. Myasthenia gravis mm-hmm. uh, can actually have some stuff. We've had patients with myasthenia gravis that couldn't even hold their heads up, and after a few months of treatment, they're now out of their wheelchairs. They're holding their head up. They're back to work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, autism, uh, Alzheimer's, um, the, the pervasive developmental delays, the Asperger syndrome, all these are the neurological components. They're all related to mitochondrial dysfunction or mitochondrial damage. You know, Dr. Batar, interesting what's coming to mind. I had a question a few days ago, someone that you know saw us at the uh, Ultimate Truth About Cancer Symposium, and most every doctor talked about the danger of heavy metals. And she commented, she says, you were the only one that talked about a metal as being good, right? Because I, you know, I talk about the therapeutic benefit of silver appropriately used in appropriate form. And so it was a good question. So I got to talk about that, you know, issues of metal toxicology and even speciation, species of metals, and how silver is indeed toxic to certain cells, but those cells happen to be bacterial cells for one, fungal cells, also virals, which are not living organisms in the same sense, but it disrupts and disables the metabolic and respiratory pathways of those lower life forms. And then, you know, yeah. so people make assumptions and say, well, if it does that, why doesn't it do that to your healthy mammalian cells? Because certainly mercury does that because there's a different, you know, level of toxicity that mercury has that silver doesn't. Silver is toxic to bacteria. It's not toxic to healthy mammalian cells. Mercury is toxic to everything. I don't think there's anything that ingests mercury is, is not devastated by it. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so, when you look at things like silver, and silver is not the only one. You've got selenium, you've got copper, you've got iron. You've got some of these, um, some of these components that are, that are essential for life. Now, in the mm-hmm. wrong ratios or in the wrong um, dosage, it can be detrimental. It'll actually act like a heavy metal. And I think silver probably is the least inert of all those because even silver can be toxic if, if taken in huge, huge, huge uh, volumes. But... I think actually selenium and copper are going to be more toxic. Uh, Correct. In, yeah. In the to excess. Right. In the wrong form. Yeah, because right. you take silver in the wrong form to excess, primarily you have a cosmetic condition over time. Your body can't excrete. It goes into the skin. It discolors due to a reaction with sunlight. But it doesn't kill you. You won't get the flu. It's kind of an interesting metal. It's very unique. I, that's why I really enjoy studying it over the past decade. And more things come out, the more I'm amazed by it. Yet selenium is more critical to life itself in terms of cell function and health and vitality and metabolism, yet it's easier to get selenium toxicity than it is silver toxicity. And just, Isn't that interesting? Yep, selenium and copper are very easy to get overloaded on. And, uh, in fact, we've talked about this in the show before, the popular crime series uh, CSI actually had a case Actually, CSI has been interesting because there have been a number of times on the show where they've dealt with metal issues. In one case, the woman was trying to kill her husband slowly with selenium toxicity. He was a rancher, and so she just kept on putting a teaspoon of selenium supplements used for cows in his tea every day or in his coffee every day, and that's how she was slowly poisoning him. Um, But they actually talked about even mercury toxicity in another episode and talked about the, surprisingly, which uh, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show, but... Surprisingly, they talked about the neurological implications from this mercury exposure, and I was pretty surprised that a mainstream TV show actually had that on there. But, you know, again, if they're reporting it from a science standpoint, it's pretty much anybody 
mm-hmm. in didactic medicine knows that mercury is extremely neurotoxic and in fact is the only substance, the only heavy metal known to cause neurodegradation of the neurofibrils. No other metals will cause that, only mercury. Yeah, and the statement mitochondrial dysfunction, as you recognize in the vaccine court, will get you compensated. But if you mention autism, which is, you know, tell me the difference, as you say, there's no difference, but the simple labeling of autism is something that they cannot stand connected to mercury because then it's linked to vaccines, and, of course, the religion is threatened. That's exactly right, the, the, the religion aspect. It's all political and has nothing to do with science. It's how you label that science. Just like many people will uh, label the uh, issue with the, uh, this has actually been very interesting. This was done and published in USA Today and, and some other um, mainstream media articles back about 10 years ago. There was a study done that talked about the removal of copper. If you can remove copper, you would have an associated improvement with dementia and Alzheimer's. And when I talked to, happened to talk to Boyd Haley um, a few weeks later, and I talked to him about this uh, component because, remember, you know, DMPS chelates preferentially um, mercury, but also one of the side effects of chelating with DMPS for mercury, you're going to actually deplete the body of stores of copper. And so I happened to mention that to him. It's interesting. They're talking about copper, which, you know, there's a, there's a depletion of copper when you treat with DMPS to get rid of mercury. So I wonder why they're not talking about mercury. I wish they'd just get focused on the right thing. And Boyd laughed and told me, he said, well, that's, that's, study was done by a friend of mine, and he knew that if he talked about taking out mercury in the cases of these dementia patients resulted in resolution of the problem, he would never get it published. So he thought, well, what else can I talk about? And since you treat uh, mercury with DMPS, and DMPS has a side effect of pulling out copper, he said, well, we can maybe talk about removing of copper, and people will start to remove copper, and while they're doing that, they're actually going to be pulling out mercury as well. And so that's the way he got around the, the... uh, message where well, he was trying to get the message to the public that hey, right. get rid of his message was to get rid of mercury, but he couldn't say that, so he said get rid of copper because he knew the effective way of getting rid of copper would also get rid of mercury. Right, and of course it was allowed. It was uh, not something that was controversial to a certain medical yeah. edicts. Uh, fascinating yeah. in that way. And, you know, in fact, we have a, a follow-up question from last week about the intravenous chelation, and every once in a while we do need to visit it because there's still a lot of misinformation half information, you know, false information about uh, intravenous chelation in terms of the best way to help people to get rid of the mercury, especially these children who have been vaccine injured. Uh, And um, this mother warrior wrote in as a follow-up. I think we talked about it. uh, Yeah, I think last week briefly we, we were able to get to it right before the end of the show because you talked about EDTA and the challenge test and uh, then the doctor is talking about DMSA like it's all in one. We'll pick up lead, then aluminum, and others. And again, there's still so much confusion out there among the medical community that I, I don't know how to parse it unless they come to another advanced medicine seminar. Well, I completely agree with you, Robert. And this question was a detailed question. Um, I don't know how detailed you want to get into it. I think that for people that have listened to us over the years, this probably is a good rehash and. Um, to go over it again, but I don't know how detailed you want to get into it. So it's, you, you, you dictate it, and I'll, I'll do it. Okay. Well, i tell you what. We're, we're up against the break. We're going to review this question off the air from a warrior mom 
uh, by the name of Jackie. And then uh, we've got another question, interesting, a little later in this hour about malaria. So those of you all traveled to areas of the world where there's malaria present, we'll talk to you about that as well. Uh, every week we do Advanced Medicine with Dr. Rasha Bittar. He's the author of the international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. Uh, it's translated into many languages now around the world. Where you're, wherever you're listening, you should be able to get it. As well as if you ever missed the show, of course, we're right here on Genesis Communications Network, GCNlive.com, and affiliates around the country. And, of course, MedicalRewind.com, hundreds and hundreds of hours of advanced medicine with Dr. Batar and me, RSB, along with the occasional visit by Super D. You know him, Super Don. All right, folks, we got a lot more healing to go of a detailed and advanced medicine nature after this break. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Part of the fun of doing some advanced medicine with with Dr. Vitar after all these years. I know what can get him riled up, and and it's like I don't tend to like to do that because, you know, listen, I can get riled up easily, too, about certain issues that, you know, we're very passionate about what we do here, and that's why we get along so well. But occasionally a listener will send in a question, and if they're really keen on what Dr. Batar is all about, they'll be a little nervous about asking the question, too, right? And, and case in point, Jackie, you asked some good questions, and we don't we don't mind them coming in because we know we get loads of new listeners, and so she's going, you know, for her child, who's obviously metal mercury toxic, to a doctor who's pushing DMSA, DMSA. And she heard us talking about this and what really riles you up about what doctors don't know and how they could be harming. And she's worried about, you know, if I do this, will my kid regress, get worse? Uh, you know, I, d- d- shouldn't it be DMSA or should it be ED? You know, there's so much confusion, Dr. Batar. How would you pick this one apart? Well, it's interesting when you made that observation that, um, you know, this warrior mom made the comment that I don't, how did she say it? She says, um, I know Dr. Buttar, no, no, mistaken, what does it say? She was worried uh, if you will get mad at the question. <laughs> because right, it, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, I still have to ask, even if Dr. Buttar will get mad at the question. Yes, yes. So, I mean, we, we kind of had a good laugh over that over the, over the break there, but um, even you, Robert, just saying, you know, pick this one apart. Yeah, you you already know what's going to get me um, excited, and this isn't this isn't so much a, a issue of excitement. It's just an issue of misinformation. So sometimes the mainstream community will say that doctors that promote uh, certain natural treatments or non-conventional treatments are being dishonest. The problem is that if you were to look at that statement from an absolute standpoint, I would say that more doctors that are doing Non-conventional medicine probably as a group do tend to be more dishonest. And let me tell you why. I know I'm, I'm opening up a whole can of worms here. <laughs> they do tend to be more dishonest because a pharmaceutical model is to give a drug and then to cover up the symptoms. And so now these guys that are stepping out of the box said, no, we're natural and we believe a better way. We shouldn't use pharmaceuticals. But what are they doing? They're using an herb or a vitamin or something else natural to do the same thing. They're covering up the symptom. So that's actually, in my world, from an integrity standpoint, more dishonest because you're saying to somebody, I'm going to do this naturally, but you're still covering up the symptom, which is where the problem lies. You can't get rid of the symptom 
by covering up the symptom. And that's where the, the critical phase, for me at least, when it comes to the difference between um, being integrous or not being integrous, that's why I make that statement. So I'm not just mm-hmm. saying it loosely. So let's come specifically to this question, and I'll, I'll make my case why, why I made that statement. So when we start looking at this lady's question, and I'll just point out certain things. She says, first of all, um, this doctor did, uh, I asked him about IV chelation for my son with autism, and he said porphyrin urine test from three years back showed lead. Now, we did used to do porphyrin testing. We started, we do, we have more than nine and a half million data points now using urine, fecal, hair, our red blood cell, um, toenail clipping levels, and porphyrin tests. We only did the porphyrin testing for maybe close to a year and a half. Maybe we had two years. I'm not sure. But we looked at so many cases of porphyrin testing where it showed that the person had mercury and urine challenge test didn't and spectrophotometry didn't show that they had mercury and post-challenge testing showed nothing going on and the child was normal. And we had opposite cases where there was no mercury, supposedly, per the porphyrin test, and yet the challenge test, the spectrophotometry, Tonal clippings, fecal, everything showed that there was mercury. So I stopped doing it because as far as I'm concerned, from a clinical standpoint, there is no correlation with uh, porphyrin testing, right? Mm-hmm. Second thing is, he talks about DMSA. Well, this, oh, I'm sorry, second thing he says, hair test was worthless. Now, for somebody to say that a hair test is worthless is really amusing to me. If somebody says that a hair test is worthless, that basically means that they have no idea. It's like saying... This piece of paper with this gibberish on it is worthless. That's because they don't know how to read the language, so they're mm-hmm. making a statement that it, it's worthless. It's just paper. All this ink on here is worthless. No, you don't know how to read it. A hair <laughs> test is extremely, extremely... Did you laugh just now, Robert? I, I, I did. I just, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I am. I'm just enjoying it. Go ahead. Okay, so you, you let me know if I'm running close to time. But Well, yeah, we are about 20 to 30 seconds, so we're going to wrap it and continue. Okay, perfect. So with the hair test, let me just tell you, hair test tells us a lot. It tells us if there's no metal coming out in hair, it tells us a tremendous amount of information because it tells us that the person's not getting rid of it. So actually, the lack of mercury in hair or lack of any metal in hair is a very big clue that that person is toxic on that particular substance. Yeah, we hear about the concept of non-excreters or people who don't methylate well. That hair test showing nothing could be very indicative of that particular issue. And then we must go further, which we're going to do with Dr. Rasha Bittar here on the Robert Scott Bell Show, Advanced Medicine Edition. Your questions, we love them. Keep sending them, 866-939-BELL, or go to robertscabell.com and drop them there. And we'll get back to you, and we'll be back after this. Great heavens, what kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. Taking on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. So you got a kid who you know has been vaccine injured and you know has been exposed to mercury and other heavy metals. And then the doctor says, we did the hair analysis and there's nothing there. It's worthless. Move along. What do you do? Do you give up or do you reach out to advanced medicine and Dr. Rashid Bittar for an answer? That's what we are doing right now, Dr. Bittar. So the key for me when I was trying to determine what was going on with my son, and this was, uh, well, he's 18 now, and so this was when he was two years old, so 16 years ago. And, Robert, you know this story. Uh, mm-hmm. When I testified in front of Congress in 2004, 
the key for me was this particular study that was published in the International Journal of Toxicology where they looked at urine, I'm sorry, when they looked at hair metal tests. And hair metal testing, they found that children with autism had little to no mercury showing up, whereas children that were neurotypic, normally developing healthy, neurologically intact children, had four times or more of mercury in their hair. Now, I've had people tell me, well, here's a study that clearly shows hair has, uh, mercury has nothing to do with it because here's the children that have high levels of mercury in their hair, and they're normal, and these children with low levels of mercury, they have autism. So my question was, wait a second, if, that, if you said that's proof that what I'm saying, the mercury has nothing, that mercury is a cause, is that I'm erroneous in my assumption, then are you saying that these children with low levels of mercury that have autism, we should supplement them with mercury? Is that what you're trying to say? And, of course, that's ludicrous. Yeah. So the, the key was that this particular study showed that there is an inverse correlation because the amount of mercury that we see in neurotypic children, just imagine you've got four times the amount of mercury coming out of a neurotypic child. Well, that means there's four times less mercury in their brain in that child because they're dumping it. That's why you see it coming out. Remember, hair is dead tissue. These tests look at what is coming out. It doesn't tell us what's in the body. So when a hair test shows nothing coming out, that's an alert sign. That tells you that this, if it's not coming out, because everybody has it. So everybody, everybody's been exposed to mercury and other metals. So you should see the metals coming out. If you don't see any mercury coming out, that is a dangerous sign. That means a child there's, in fact, I can, I can look at a hair test, which is an easy screen tool, and I can tell without ever seeing the child whether or not they, they have a development delay or not, just from that one particular part. So now coming back to this uh, lady, Jackie, who asked this question with the doctor, who says that hair is uh, of no use, right there, that's another second alert that tells you this doctor doesn't really know what's going on. Um, again, I'm not trying to badmouth the doctor. I'm just giving you these are questions you should be asking. The third one. DMSA, it's an all-inclusive, you can do everything with DMSA. DMSA is considered to be a neurotoxin in many parts of Europe and other countries. DMSA, if DMSA was really the solution, then why is it that the government approves thimerosal for use, mercury for use, and then the one drug out there, DMSA, that supposedly pulls out the mercury, if you think it's so effective, why do they say, oh, you don't even need a prescription for that, you can get it over the counter? Hmm. DMSA is dimercaptosuccinic acid, Okay. It is too close to succinic acid, which is the ubiquitous overall largest substrate in the citric acid cycle in our body. So when you give DMSA, the body sees it as succinic acid. The only difference between DMSA and succinic acid are two subhydro groups versus two hydroxyl groups. So the body sees it as being part of succinic acid or, or succinate and basically substitutes it in the Krebs cycle. And in the Krebs cycle, that's the energy-producing um, me metabolic pathway in our body. Everybody should know the citric acid cycle, the Krebs cycle, um, anybody who's treating any, any patients. I mean, I know, Robert, you know this cycle like the back of your hand. So the, the Krebs cycle is, takes the citric acid or the, or the uh, succinic acid um, and takes the succinic acid and trans uh, transforms it into FADH, uh, in, into NADH2, and then further on down the electron transport chain causes um, uh, 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 the, the entire cascade that eventually results in the adenosine triphosphate, which is the molecule that's then released and then breaks apart, and that yields energy. And that's what we want. That's what we want in a normal citric acid cycle. But what happens is when you have DMSA in there, the body, the, the citric acid cycle, the Krebs cycle, picks up DMSA instead of succinic acid and inhibits the FADH2 conversion and further inhibits and blocks, prevents the electron transport chain from doing its job and causes a complete dis, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, 
like just a, regulation. Whole system. It's like yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like throwing a wrench in the whole system and locks everything down. So mm-hmm. DMSA is not a chelator that you want to use, and it then causes other types. If, and if you do an actual challenge test with DMSA, you might see some, and sometimes you will see mercury coming out. But the problem is that it's causing this side effect because remember, a two chelator must mm-hmm. go in the body and come out exactly the same way. It's inert. It can't be used by the body. So sure. by definition, DMSA going into the body and being used in the citric acid cycle eliminates it from being a chelator. Right there, but, it doesn't even meet the first criteria. Well, and Dr. Batar, she brings up the issue of regression. And I'm thinking, dude, if you're on DMSA when you're corrupting the cycles, like Krebs cycle, you're going to see all kinds of things that you might determine to be regression, whether it is or is not. These are adverse events happening due to the use of DMSA. You are absolutely correct. So let's talk about regression just for a second, if we have time. Um, yeah. Regression is. Do you like the way I? Do you like the way I asked you that? Just kept on going without even waiting. For <laughs> Don't worry for me. Just you carry on, my friend. <laughs> so, so this point that you brought up is another critical point, and I'm so glad you brought it up because DMSA side effects versus regression, totally different things. Regression basically think of a pail of salt water that you picked up at the beach. And there's sand and then the water in there, and you let it sit there for about an hour, and you look in there, and the, the water's clear, and you can see the sand at the bottom. But now you take out the sand. Think of the sand as a mercury. Think of the water in the pail as your body. Now I go in there and I start pulling out the sand, the mercury out of the body. What's going to happen to that water? It's going to get mucked up, mercury, and cloudy again. Exactly. Well, it's getting mucked up and cloudy because we're moving the sand out of the water. And the same thing happens in the body. When you start pulling out these metals, it'll cause what we call a regression. It's cleaning up the system, but there's regression because of the mobilization aspect. Now what's happening with DMSA, people will say, oh, that's regression. That's not true regression. That's side effects, just like you said, Robert, of yep. DMSA. There could be some other components in there, but regression is something that is a temporary component and will resolve in short order. With DMPS, we see that. With EDTA, we sometimes see that. With DMSA, what we see is not regression because it doesn't go away. It just gets worse. The gut gets worse. They, become, they get this flaccid response. There's a whole bunch of other things that end up happening. In children that have been treated with DMSA, it always takes us more time to get them straight than, than children that have not been treated. I'd rather have a child that's never been treated than to have a child that's had DMSA treatment because now you've got to deal with other sequela of the treatment. It's kind of yeah. like somebody's, you know, a house has been built brand new versus a house that was built incorrectly. Now you got to go back in there and redo it. And the redoing it takes more time, effort, you know, mm-hmm. resources, etc. Beautifully um, said. Going on mm-hmm. with the question. I mean, we're not even done with this. It keeps on going on and on. I mean, I can keep on going, Robert, here. Uh, let's see. What's this? Um, you want to hit the uh, biomarkers to check for kidney or liver or anything like that? I don't think we can go all the way through it because there's a lot, and I, uh, we've got some other questions I want to get to. But if there's anything that jumps out in this one that would be real important if we left on the table, we don't want to leave it there. Okay, so we definitely want to look at kidney function and liver function, but those are standard tests. There's nothing elaborate that you have to do and do specialized testing. Um, they talked about um, adrenal and, and methylation and all this other stuff. Again, if you mm-hmm. can get – methylation is a very big issue. Glycosylation is also an issue, but it's not as big of an issue as methylation. Acetylation is also an issue, but not as big as methylation. But, again, you get the metals out. You don't have to start worrying about micromanaging these things. I, you know, we used to do certain things. We tried B12 injections. We found that there was no improvement with the B12 infections, uh, injections as compared to what our treatments were because we were pulling the mercury out and just giving them an N-chain B complex orally was sufficing and actually sometimes superseding what the injections would do. So, again, you don't want to drive the system. 
You want to pull the garbage out of the system and allow the system to come back online because the body's own innate intelligence is to heal. It's the problem that we create by getting in the way that prevents that healing from occurring. So focus in on detoxification, the effective uh, aspects of detoxification. And I think, I think Robert, this covers pretty much all yeah. the highlights from this particular email. And, folks, go back and listen. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of archives. I know it takes a while to get caught up. We still have people catching up. And you can listen to the new show and then keep catching up because it's there, medicalrewind.com, easiest place to get it. Of course, we have it linked up through SoundCloud and GCN and many other places to do that. Uh, but uh, it's not the first time we've covered it, but we visit it, revisit it once in a while because we have a lot of new listeners. It's a very, very important topic. As more of you figure out that your kids have been poisoned with these heavy metals through vaccination and other methods, uh, this is an interesting question. Well, for Yeah, go ahead. Robert, I was just going to say one other quick mm-hmm. point about this, because she did ask about uh, suppositories versus, versus IVs. Uh-huh. I'll just say really quickly, um, IVs, uh, as far as I'm concerned, are the best for for as far as getting the bulk going and, in fact, in older children to get the, get the cascade working. Um, when it's not the IVs, the second best I've found to be transdermals, but you got to be very careful how the transdermals are put together. As you know, what happened after we testified in front of Congress. Right. Uh, suppositories don't seem to work as well. One, they're irritating. Two, in certain studies, have shown that they leach out local minerals in the mucosal area of the rectum in, where they've been sitting, and that causes leukoplastic and dysplastic changes that, that are basically precancerous. So, and I've, I've had a couple of patients that have tried them, and, and all of them had irritation. They didn't like it. So, we don't use suppositories. Um, and my biggest reason is because of the local depletion of mineral content of that tissue. Sure. So hopefully that answers that question. Well, and based on news stories that are reporting uh, higher incidences of colorectal cancers in Gen X and millennials, interestingly enough. So uh, there are a lot of reasons there, but we don't want to aggravate or make worse that which is a tendency already. Now, this is a question right. from Terry asking, hey, say, hi, Robert and Dr. Batar. I have a friend whose son contracted malaria while serving in the military. He still has severe episodes of the illness. Are there any natural or homeopathic aids that may be of help in the situation? Thanks for all your help and all you do for health, freedom, and liberty. Terry, okay. Uh, I've I've been to Africa twice in malaria zones. First time I went, I took melphloquine. This was before I was a homeopath, knew anything about it. I survived it, found out later how dangerous that drug can be in terms of hallucinogenics, hallucinations, if you will, and and, and neurological damage even. Uh, I utilize the silver hydrosol, copper hydrosol, or colloidal copper, also a safe way to uh, neutralize the uh, uh, the malaria, and, of course, homeopathic uh, phosphorus. And homeopathy got its start by addressing fevers and fever diseases, including the use of cinchona or china, which is, of course, the uh, the bitters that they add into, you know, from the cinchona tree. Uh, so th- those are some things that I do. Uh, Dr. Batar, you may have addressed malaria as well. Well, we've addressed malaria from the conventional standpoint, and then, of mm-hmm. course, some of the more esoteric things that I talked to you about with the nor energy whether we took ampules and we put certain homeopathics, we put um, yes. artemisian. Artemisian mm-hmm. is very good for malaria, and um, we put the uh, artemisian within these vials, uh, enhancements and naturally optimized resonance energy. And people had uh, no incidence of malaria, then took them off, and they had like a 30% of the incidence of malaria in the same patient population. So artemisian is what I would recommend with this nor energy component. Excellent. Yeah, I support the use of that as well. Listen, we're on another break here. We've got so much to do and so little time to do it. We'll have to do some kind of rapid fire uh, news stories of the day with Dr. Batar. We come back, hold your breath, and then breathe. Breathe deep. We're going to make it through. We'll be right back. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back. 
information is so good, it requires no expiration date. The Robert Scott Bell Show. For our friends in South Florida listening in on the 19th of March, I'll be appearing live my radio show afternoon Sunday the 19th. And a lecture that follows at Simply Natural. Richard Pearl's hosting me there with his organic restaurant and health food store. Look forward to seeing you there. And Dr. Bittard, who's wrapping up another advanced medicine. Man, oh man, there's so many stories I want to get to. One is the aluminum exposure at human dietary levels for 60 days reaches a threshold sufficient to promote memory impairment in rats. I know we're not under the impression that aluminum is good for you, but again, more evidence of these heavy metals. Exactly, and the uh, denudation of the neurofibrils is more significant with mercury compared to any other metals, but we don't hear anything about mercury. We do hear about lead that's mm-hmm. been published. We hear about aluminum, and all these metals, yes, they all cause detriment, and yes, they should all be removed, but mercury is exponentially worse than all these other metals. And when you have a synergistic combination of these metals, then it's even more uh, damaging. Right. It's, exponential. it's not a linear correlation it's an exponential correlation and it's explosive just like we talked about the ld50 of lead and mercury becoming ld1 the combination uh again it's not a one plus one equals two right and ld1 of lead with the ld1 of mercury is an ld100 yes thank you yeah now there's another story here related to uh autism and they're, they're showing mris um and they're linking the autism to an increased cerebrospinal fluid does this add, does this subtract, does it take a side turn on the mercury relationship here? How would you describe this excess cerebrospinal fluid? Well, there were studies done in the past that talked about the size of the cranium. Autistic children had a greater circumference of the cranium, and so they try to attribute that to um, autism. It's possible that both of these are similar findings because if you have more cerebrospinal fluid, you could have an expansion of the skull because at that point the cranium is still soft. So right. you could have a mass effect causing expansion. Um, you know, is there an inflammation going on there? If you hit somebody with a hammer, you're going to have a swelling in that part of the body. Well, here the brain's getting affected, and so there's an inflammatory cascade going on. So that inflammation causes more volume to expand, and is that what's causing the, the uh, increase in the cranium size? Is that maybe how the cerebrospinal fluid is a response in the body where it's a compensatory response, the solution to pollution is dilution, so you've got this right. pollution aspect going on inside the brain with the spinal with the cerebrospinal fluids, the body produces more in order to dilute it. I mean, I, I don't know, but all these follow logic, and you can easily deduce they're all combined and similar in, in the results. They're observing different results, but it's the same same issue. Well, we've talked other body systems, uh, you know, retaining water, uh, providing for excess fat to dilute the toxic burden, especially to protect certain areas of the, of the body that are critically impaired. Uh, could it be a matter of that excess fluid working to try and, deal with the excess burden and toxicity, whether it be mercury or other things. That's a, you know, again, we don't have a definitive answer, but it's an intriguing perspective when you look at, is it the cause or is it the effect? Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think the observation is very sim- it's a similar type of observation with the studies that showed increasing circumference size, increased cerebrospinal fluid. It could be the same causation, inflammatory mm-hmm. cascade. Yep. Uh, last study of the thing to reference here is about uh, celiac disease. And, of course, we know a lot of celiac is, is not really celiac, but gluten intolerance due to uh, leaky gut, uh, diverticulitis, et cetera. A lot of inflammatory compounds coming in from all kinds of toxins. But this is saying gluten may trigger lymphoma in some celiac disease patients. Yeah, and this, again, is not uh, rocket science. Robert, we could possibly make this a moment of dough because 
again, celiac is an inflammatory cascade. We know cancer is an inflammatory cascade. I would, I would think that uh, chronic claws off food allergies and that inflammatory cascade, if it's allowed to go, it's not just going to be lymphoma. It'll probably be any other pro-inflammatory disease process, which includes cancers. Mm-hmm. Well, and we've That's also referenced uh, the fact that now they're finding a lot of glyphosate in many of the whole grain products that contain gluten. And, of course, this vast over, I, I don't know if it's over-diagnosis or over-claiming of the, of the celiac patient. There's more than ever. Is it really celiac, or are we reacting to these toxins, these pesticides, these genetically modified organisms in the food that we're eating? Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting component, too, because most of the celiac diseases that I've seen when they come to us, we test them for food allergies, we put them in a rotational food allergy program, and instantaneously, if the person is 30 years or, or younger... Within a few weeks, their problems resolve. If it's older, then sometimes it's permanent issues that we have to deal with, but they all improve. Yeah, yeah. well, when is celiac not celiac? Exactly. And uh, looking at all the things that stimulate the process of inflammation chronically, because we don't, we're not aware of what we're putting into our bodies. We become aware of it. We remove them. We do the things like we do with advanced medicine and in the nine steps to keep the doctor away, and you see the reversal. Well, Dr. Batar, it's time to tell them what they need to know before we got to go. Power to heal. It's yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show.